Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis. Joining me today is sinologist and social scientist David Kelly, formerly of the ANU, among several other universities, and now a principal with China Policy, a Beijing-based information and advisory firm. David Kelly, how are you? Very well today. Good to hear it. We both, uh, well, I won't say woke up this morning, so I think we both noticed it last night. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald published online, I think it's in today's newspaper, the leaked, or as they said, intentionally leaked portfolio from the Chinese embassy in Canberra, quote, if you make China the enemy, China will be the enemy. <laughs> any, any thoughts on this release from the Chinese embassy? It's a, it's a low point, and we've been gathering low points for the last year and more. Mm. So it just keeps going on and on. However, I discount it to a, a certain extent. Uh, I've been involved with Chinese affairs for 45 years, and I've don't lived say, in China for 20. Don't say that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've seen some changes, and yeah. but I've seen many of these crises come and go. Ten years ago, we had the stern who affair and you would have thought that was the absolute uh, bottom basement uh -huh. of relations but um, life goes on and so does trade oh we seem to have lost sound producers if you can step in i've lost david's sound i don't know if we are still hearing it on the youtube stream but i'm certainly not hearing any sound from david so we might want to look into that Testing, testing. Ah, we're back. All right. So, David, I lost you for a moment there. You were saying that we've been through this sort of thing before. How's it looking this time? Well, th this kind of reporting is the issue to my mind. Um, of course, China has used this expression, uh, China. It, it is using its own state name as a scare word. And mm. I find that... Uh, um, Really, I, I, my sense of humor cuts in at that point. <laughs> and I want, to, I want to say with Alice in Wonderland, you're nothing but a pack of cards. Now, China is not a pack of cards, but no state agency has the right to say that China as a whole is treating Australia as a whole uh, as, as an enemy, even prospectively. Mm -hmm. So um, you must discount this. This is great copy, but it is not policy. But how do we discount this? I mean, if this is a quasi-official statement of the Chinese government, I mean, should we just, you know, let it roll off our backs and say, well, China says these sort of things and go on with selling iron ore? <laughs> or what's the problem? No, response? Uh, of course not, because uh, even even as copy, it does its work. Okay. Um, the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, iron ore is is I would say not in really in danger. Uh, mm -hmm. Wine and barley uh, aren't really on the same scale. Okay. And um, uh, you will find diplomats uh, off the record will say, actually, you know, it's not as bad as it, as it looks. It looks very bad and, and we must manage that mm -hmm. uh, because there are people who will see this and react and their, right. their reactions can be as uh, you know, as uh, with the famous sociological principle of 
um, you know, reality is as as people think it is. I forget the exact saying. Right. Social facts are are, are real in their uh, consequences. I think something are, like that. Yes. Yes. Emil Durkheim. Uh, but let me ask you. I mean, we always hear from. I mean, we meaning those of us who don't speak Chinese, who are not. Uh, you know, real experts on Chinese culture. We often hear that China, in Chinese culture, saving face is everything. And thus, you know, we need to take this sort of rhetoric exceptionally seriously when it comes to China because, you know, face is on the line. But you seem to be suggesting that, no, really, we can just take this as posturing and uh, not worry so much. Well, you know that uh, you know, culture is the most contentious word in the English language, according to many people. And, um, you know, the discipline of anthropology, which was my first field, was transformed by World War Two when books like, um, you know, the, 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 um, the book about Japan by Ruth Benedict uh, made it very popular to generalize about a culture that was in contention with you. So right now, there's a multiplication of mirrors about what is Chinese culture. Chinese culture is not one single thing. It is a massive, massive um, concatenation of the ancient past. But don't forget the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Don't forget the Soviet culture, that, which was pumped into China at one time. Then don't forget the massive pumping in of American popular culture. That, that is why the liberals in China, one of the reasons that the liberals meaning pro-democratic forces in China. I'm using the Australian meaning of liberal, right. as in liberal party. Um, think that um, uh, think in a, that Trump is far better than Biden because um, they understand the American culture symbols that he's wielding, and uh, uh, and so that's that can't be explained by something called Chinese culture. So face, yes, face is is. Um, you will find that families are managed hierarchically. Uh, you find that the extended family or clan is much more important than in Western society. But I don't think of this as culture. You have to think about the institutions. And there is no institution that, that says you must maintain face. People lose, are losing face all the time. And um, <laughs> I've never had much face in China. <laughs> I've never had much face in Australia. <laughs> but, but so really, we should relax a little bit about this, these statements coming out of the embassy and just go on with our daily lives, not worrying too much about the China relationship. We shouldn't let China become a scare word. Okay. It's another nation among nations, and uh, it has as many rational people waiting in the wings as it has, um, you know, uh, outliers, uh, outlandish sort of people. Um, and uh, the, 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 the people I know and the people I dealt with, particularly in the universities and think tanks, they are quietly critical of this kind of language. Oh, really? I've, documented, I've been documenting this for years. Um, the, the really heavy hitters in international relations theory, foreign affairs, um, I could mention a few names, but they won't mean much to your listeners. Um, th these are the sort of people you have to queue up to do interviews with because mm -hmm. the BBC has got there before you. And they are saying uh, there's no need for this sort of vituperative language. Um, but let's, uh, let's go back to um, first principles of diplomacy, which is to, you know, uh, stay on a, on a, on a steady uh, bearing and uh, don't use exaggerated language. Mm. Let that's, me uh, say, that's obviously been broken by the, their Ministry of Foreign Affairs right now. 
Right. Let me say just but a few. That could quick, easily be hauled in tomorrow. Let me just say a few quick hellos. We have uh, Bradley, Anthony, Mike, Christopher, Muzzle Ray, uh, all out here watching. They've already started putting in questions. Thanks, uh, folks. And do get your questions in. We'll get to them in a few minutes. But if you want to start piling them in now, we will uh, get to them when we're ready for questions. Uh, David, we've heard a lot lately about this idea of wolf warrior diplomacy. And I know I didn't telegraph this to you as one of the things I wanted to talk about, but it seems so relevant here. I mean, you're kind of saying that the wolf warriors are not in control in China. Yet, when I read the popular press accounts of China, and these are mainly people like me who don't speak Chinese, who don't read original sources, we seem to hear the message that China has become a wolf warrior nation and is you know, out to conquer the world. Is that really a misreading of what's going on inside China? No, there is a, a policy setting uh, which has been enunciated pretty fully mm -hmm. by the leader, by Chairman uh, Xi. Mm -hmm. uh, and with that is a complete network of his acolytes, his, his, his uh, true believers, his passionate uh, um, disciples, and then from then, the, this, this then shades off into journalists for whom this is safe territory. Then there are opportunists for whom this is a way of um, dishing out their, their rivals in the media or wherever, in the think tanks and universities. Um, some of the people who were recently barred from uh, getting visas to Australia, uh, so-called Australian experts, um, they have espoused uh, kind of um, not wolf warrior in the simple sense. I mean, people hear that word wolf warrior and they imagine a wolf. But the original movie that that's based on, Wolf Warrior 2, in that movie, which we analyzed closely at the time, um, it's, it's based on Rambo. The wolf warrior <laughs> is essentially Rambo. So right. if you don't like wolf warrior, you, be, you, should, you should attack Rambo too. Mm -hmm. Because Rambo is that guy. He, he abrogates international law whenever he can. Mm -hmm. Much as Clint Eastwood abrogates uh, US law when he says, make my day. Mm -hmm. This is popular culture. These, these are images from popular culture. And they are wielded in official circles in irresponsible ways. And we have to make allowance for that. Uh, and you have, to, you have to deduct so much of that. The wolf warrior, yes, he goes across international lines to rescue a Chinese citizen, but he also rescues a, a European woman who is in an African country doing a health, she's helping stamp out Ebola or something like Ebola. Mm. And when the Chinese come over the border, they have behind them the UN flag. So oh, the wolf really? warrior has got the UN flag behind him. <laughs> uh, so it's like, you've got to imagine Rambo with a UN flag. I can't imagine that at all. No, you can't. It, American. It, 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 is, it, is, it is incoherent. <laughs> uh, well, let me get to the topic that I actually did ask you to prepare for today. And that was, you know, before all hell broke loose uh, last night. Uh, the, you've, you've written that the entire party state is in overdrive after the fifth plenum, which was held the end of October of the 19th Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. Now, most of us are only vaguely aware of what a plenum is what the Central Committee is. Could you demystify a little of that for us? Yeah, these are the permanent furniture of the party state. 
Um, large elements of them are devoted to political theatre. And that is why this can they can absorb something from a popular movie, the most popular movie ever in China. Um, but they also do certain uh, mechanical tasks. It's you know like the counting of the votes in the U.S., which we've all been exposed to endlessly. <laughs> in the in China, you don't have people voting. It's not counting votes, but faces and uh, you know bums have got to be on seats in front of the leader, and the leader has got to state to them what they already know. Okay. They know that certain things are now priorities, and they, and, and um, a plenum means that the central committee, which is a large body of people, it's some two hundred. I, I I I don't have the exact. So figure this in so my this mind. is not the Politburo. No, oh no, the Politburo is the actual decision making. That is where the policy was probably hammered out at its at its top level. Okay. I've and got to turn off something here. I think it's coming from my. On my iPad, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, which and, is new, and, and so I haven't learned to shut it down. So to fill in while you're doing that, the Politburo is the smaller actual decision-making body. The Central Committee is the wider committee of the party yeah. that then receives the instructions sure. from the Politburo. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, you could compare the Politburo to a cabinet. Okay. It's a cabinet, and it, it is selected from the Central Committee, which is nationwide. And this is a, a very big group that can't meet all the time. It can't meet on a regular basis. So it comes together several times in the course of the, the five-year run of, of, the, of the leadership uh, administration. Um, and they come together six times mm -hmm. in, by convention. Um, the first plenum is held soon after they're announced. Uh, then the second plenum often is devoted to um, as I recall to the economy, I, I might get the, the, the exact details wrong. The third plenum does other certain other tasks. The fifth plenum um, generally attends to the five-year plan. The, ah, the five-year okay. plan is not just what it sounds like. It's an institution. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, inherited from the Soviet system, and uh, it is often described by uh, economists as a straitjacket, uh, it, it produces many formal targets, um, but in the Chinese system, it, it does a lot of work and is a very large bureaucracy, um, which includes think tanks and research institutions that collaborate to produce targets, which are then often, often applied in practice. So if they say there's going to be a reduction of emissions by uh, 2030, then there will be elements of this five-year plan which build towards that target. So it can do, it, it has multiple functions depending right. on the policy issue. Okay. And as I, as I, uh, in my understanding, and this understanding comes actually from your work, so, so thank you for sharing the information, is that the key to this new five-year plan is dual circulation, which to summarize, Imports will stimulate demand, domestic demand. Exports will reinforce uh, the world's reliance on China. And foreign direct investment will contribute to industrial upgrading. Is that what dual circulation is? And if so, is that anything new? It's not strictly new. Uh, in fact, um, variations of the dual circulation were in place uh, over 10 years ago. Then there were policies which were much more 
um, oriented towards opening. Mm -hmm. And opening, again, is a term of art. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, great wrangling that goes on uh, between China and the WTO, or uh, particularly China and the US and, and Australia, is it's not really open. Uh, it's only open to the extent that uh, that it's, that suits uh, China's agenda. Um, and uh, if you are, are living and working in the business environment in Beijing, you know that many things are certainly not open, um, and and that there are that there are. And China will say that well, it's it's the same with you guys. Uh, you 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 also play the you play the, the game to the hilt, and uh, you, you're not um, you 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 will use double standards for your own openness. So you you know that that's another discussion. Um, uh, but, but dual circulation involves the idea. First of all, circulation just means trade. Okay. It means this this sector of the economy produces something, and in exchange. An exchange will go around, uh, and, and you're going to have two. One is internal. You really want to build up your internal self-reliance. And self-reliance is actually the key term. Okay. You, if you really grasp what is meant by, by self-reliance in China, you are you're most of the way to understanding dual circulation. Because it is keeping a moat between your internal um, commercial networks and what you're offering and taking from the outside world. Okay. And that's and so really the, So this is really more about autarky than about anything else? It certainly is. And uh, it, nonetheless, China is an immensely powerful trading nation. No, nobody's in any right. doubt about that. Right. Let me take a moment here. We're about to go to viewer questions. And if you do have questions, please feed them in. I see we have four questions already, and we'll get to more if you can give us more. In the meantime, I would like to give my pitch. Please. Press the like button on the video. When you like the video, that gives a signal to YouTube that other people should be fed the same video. So we appreciate your support. Of course, if you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to the CIS. Uh, also, it's end of year, and the end of year means membership. Now, many of you are already members. Please do renew. We appreciate it. If you're not a member, $40 will get you a membership in the Center for Independent Studies. Or if you would like to join at or upgrade to the $250 membership level, Guess what? <laughs> That's right. I will send you a personally signed copy of Liberty and Liberalism by Bruce Smith, the first work of classical liberalism published in Australia, republished by the Center for Independent Studies. Please do support us. Uh, this show can't happen without support from members like you. And that doesn't mean for me, I don't get paid for this show. Dave is not getting paid for this show. That means the staff who actually do the work to make the show happen, got to pay their salaries and paying their salaries means memberships and contributions. So please consider us at the end of the year with your uh, end of year contribution. Thank you very much. David, we have questions pouring in. And the first one is a very broad one from Mike. How do you define culture? Well, uh, as I said, I, I come from a, a, the Durkheimian school of the University of Sydney. Um, <laughs> and what, what does the uh, University of Sydney have in common with the University of Chicago? Um, social anthropology, not cultural anthropology. So we were trained to um, always look at culture and to break it down to institutional elements. Mm -hmm. um, it, you could say that uh, Chinese culture is is what a Chinese person learns from their mother. Well, they learn the language. 
They like certain foods. They'll, they like uh, certain ways of behaving towards elders and, and youngers, and, and they form networks in certain ways. If you were born in Australia, you do a lot of that differently. But uh, to, think, to think of culture as some kind of DNA mm-hmm. is, um, well, it's opposed by my, my greatest intellectual influence in China is a professor of history at Tsinghua University named Qin Hui. He's a good friend of mine, and I've translated a lot of his stuff, as has a Canadian professor named uh, David Owenby. And if you look us up, you'll find we've translated lots of this guy's stuff. He is very much against the idea of Chinese traditional culture as being some kind of black box sent from the planet of Mars, or <laughs> a, a, which has landed on Earth and then beams out a ray. And if you if you are susceptible to this ray, if you have the the sensors, uh, the molecules that react to this ray, you will behave in a certain way. That is a fallacy of culture. That's not culture. Uh, a lot of people in China identify with, say, Michael Jackson. <laughs> I know people in China who, who can dance just like Michael Jackson. What's their culture? Also, right. now, now go to something deeper, capital punishment. Who has the highest levels of capital punishment in the world? China and the USA. Mm. Can that be explained by culture? Does that mean they've got the same culture? Okay. Obviously not. In the USA, capital punishment functions in a completely different institutional network to capital punishment in America. The results are comparable, but the causes are not. So when people say that you know communism and the CCP is not part of Chinese culture, I'm guessing you would say that's entirely wrong, that now it is. No, I'd see that as a linguistic problem. You're first of all using culture in the sense of, of some sort of DNA that you could in principle get from your mum and dad and granddad. Uh, and then now you're talking about culture as something you get from your peers at school, the newspaper you read, social media today. Mm-hmm. Social media is changing culture at the rate of knots. Um, so you really, you really must disaggregate this term. It, it is extremely dangerous to use culture as a, uh, you know, as a, and, and this is what you'll read in the books of, of, say, Martin Jakes, When China Rules the World. Right. He talks about Chinese cultural DNA. It, mm-hmm. It's absurd. It, 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 I, I have to, I've got too much experience. I, I've lived there for long periods of time, and I know that there are many, many, many Chinese cultures. The Chinese culture of the Tang Dynasty was so Buddhist that it, it would bear very little resemblance to the Chinese culture of today. Really? Okay. Buddhism had an enormous impact. And many, many people still think in Buddhist terms. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that Chinese culture? Is, is that, a, no, well, it didn't come from China. Right. But nor did Christianity come from uh, England and America. <laughs> Certainly not. Uh, Anthony, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Christopher, uh, Oh, no, Anthony, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reading my questions wrong. Anthony would like you to comment on Chinese people referring to white leftists as, forgive my bad Chinese, bai zhuo. Is that a yeah. meaningful term to you? Can you pronounce it yes. properly for us, first of all? Uh, uh, that's uh, bai zhuo. Okay. Uh, that's the tone. And what does it it's mean? A it's, a little, it's a tonality that you've got to get. Anyway, um, it, it means... Um, it means the feckless left. Mm. You know, feckless, wonderful old word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> feckless is sort of ineffectual. Mm-hmm. And um, 
in the, the, this is the, the, the issue here is the, the, the expression right and left, right? That's a meme. That's what people call a meme. We've got a right hand and a left hand, and you basically need two hands. Um, and uh, in the French Revolution, people who sat on the right hand side of the assembly were, were uh, generally in support of the monarchy, and the people on the left hand side were, wanted to change it. Um, right and this what right and left mean completely different things in different political systems what is called right and left in america is doesn't resemble in my opinion right and left in australia right. um it's extraordinary for me to to have for joe biden to be described as right as as, as left wing mm -hmm. or socialist he's basically proposing <coughs> stuff that we have um in this country that is supported by conservative governments Right. Like universal health care. Um, so, you, you know, you can't really make sense of it. As I, I mentioned, my, my friend and mentor, Qinhui, uh, he makes this very strong point that there are no nations today which are completely um, state economies or completely market economies. Basically, you have a spectrum and, you, and different political systems stand in different shades on that spectrum. Uh, he says that in China, the state has hugely more power than the state in, say, Australia or, or the US, but it has vastly less responsibility. There's no universal health cover in China. I, people don't seem to know that. They imagine there must be. China is supposed to be communist and socialist. Therefore, it must have all of the appurtenances of what you, we call the left here. But no, in China, um, people, wealthy people used to, when there was a Hong Kong, run to Hong Kong to enjoy capitalism. What were they enjoying? Universal health cover. Pregnant women would go there to have their, to, to, to give birth. It, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, worth staying in China. If you had the money, better go to Hong Kong because mm. there you can enjoy capitalism. That <laughs> capitalism is called socialism in the United States today. <laughs> Christopher is asking us to compare. He says both Nazi Germany and Soviet Union sought autarky. Is there an inherent contradiction between China's integration into the international system and its totalitarian system at home? Well, once again, totalitarianism is a scare word. I regard China as basically totalitarian in that I would not expect to ever win a court case against the government. <laughs> uh, uh, court cases against the government fail about 99.9% of the time. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that is, there again, we're bending the meanings of words. Um, in, in fact, the Chinese uh, population were given greatly more personal freedoms in the year 1978, when Deng Xiaoping introduced the reforms. I was a student in China in the late 70s, so I saw the Cultural Revolution close up. Mm -hmm. And you basically were suffocating. Right. You could not read anything off the curriculum. You could not know anything off the curriculum. You certainly couldn't mention anything off the curriculum. That changed in 78. Uh, people it could stay up all night watching American cable news. I think they probably still can. Mm -hmm. So that's... That's not, that's not uh, Mao-style or German-style totalitarianism. This is market totalitarianism. That's why the, the, the British historian Steve Tsung, who's a, 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 another friend and colleague, he calls it market 
Leninism. It's a new thing. It's a new thing. It's, it's an emergent compound. We haven't seen anything quite like it before, and we really need new tools to understand it. Bradley asks, was it wise for Australia to seek an inquiry into the origin of the coronavirus when it turns out that the compromised, and he says largely China-controlled, and I have to say I agree with him, World Health Organization, will be the agency conducting the inquiry? Was it wise for Australia to even ask for the inquiry, given what we have? Well, I, I'm sorry, the question is not well formed. Um, it was not Australia uh, sitting down and, and conspiring to ask a difficult question. Maurice Payne was hounded on the insiders by the um, by David, um, what's his name, Sleep Street? I'm sorry, I, I, I'm okay. newly back in Australia and I haven't got, I haven't got the names of all the Australian um, authorities and, and, and celebrities. Uh, he asked her repeatedly, he hounded her on TV mm -hmm. uh, until she asked the question. Mm. She asked the question in broad terms it, she simply called for a public investigation mm -hmm. uh, it, it, for China to then uh, take umbrage at that was actually drawing a very long bow. I mm -hmm. think the question was perfectly in order, but it was it, it was not wise. So in, the answer to the question, not wise, but legitimate. Mm. Bruce would like to ask, first of all, he says, hello, David. Uh, she has abandoned Deng's cautious policy by adopting a much more aggressive stance than in the recent past. Has she mismanaged this effort to turn China into a respected or I'm going to add perhaps feared international power? That's a... Uh... <laughs> That is certainly a core question that we, we deal with every day. Um, today, I would say that we still haven't seen the outcome. Um, that, that question can be only fully answered by the outcome. I, I always think of Paul, Queating, Paul Keating's famous, famous notion that um, it's always legitimate to, um, uh, what did he say, it's always legitimate to, 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 to tackle your opponent. Uh, it's, it is legitimate of China to take advantage of weaknesses in the international system. Um, China has so far only um, got into physical conflict on the Indian border uh, where things are at a stalemate. Mm -hmm. It is nonetheless involved in very, very, it, it has got issues, political issues on 20, I think, of its international borders. And um, this is not new. Uh, China has had contentious borders more or less since it, it, it set up in 1949. Um, they're mainly handled diplomatically. Um, and in some cases, there is a ceding of territory. I think China ceded some of its claimed territory to Turkmenistan, because Turkmenistan is an energy superpower, relative terms. Mm -hmm. um, nonetheless, I would say that she has generated internal opposition. I mentioned before, some of the senior people uh, in the think tanks and the universities um, are, are still able to write in a guarded way saying that uh, China has in fact, is not just in danger of overreach, it is in overreach. I tend to think that China is in overreach and um, it's, um, 
very much uh, work on the in front of Biden uh, and uh, and those who who um, side with Biden to do something about it. Uh, whether the, whether it, it is it is not too late is another question. Right. Um, Waza wants to follow up on the issue of a court case against China. He suggests, or he or she suggests, uh, that in China you will never win a court case even against a Chinese person in China. Is it possible for foreigners to get justice in China's courts? Oh, I would say that um, a, a certain number of commercial cases are successfully concluded. Uh, you'll find that a lot of international deals that China signs are signed according to conventions such as exist in the city of London. There's a certain mm -hmm. there's a certain formulae which are which say that the adjudicating body in the case of a dispute will be uh, will be a, a third party from somewhere else. And uh, this is certainly what the British government was advertising when China was really pushing hard with the Belt and Road. They said, hey, China, you should use our convention because then more people will buy in. If they know that they can get a settlement to a dispute, the dispute might be about, you know, goods gone astray, right. all, kinds of, all kinds of routine commercial uh, issues. Uh, where, there is, uh, where, where there is great inequity is, is when... Um, when China attaches a political significance to a certain bilateral relationship. And that's what I, if I was an Australian, well, I am. <laughs> I am a principal <laughs> of a business that runs in, we are, right. we are registered as a, we are registered as a um, wholly owned foreign enterprise in Beijing, and we wouldn't like to go to court um, over, over any, um, mm. anything non-routine, right. um, say uh, whether or not we have uh, engaged in journalism, that awful practice of journalism, <laughs> we never do, <laughs> um, you know, because then uh, you, you, you won't win there. Right. Um, well, if I were an American, I would ask you a question from Anthony. Uh, what influence does Confucian philosophy continue to have on the way China is currently run? You've got me started. You're going to have to <laughs> tell me to wind up. Solitor, please do, please do. This is my PhD topic. We have 15 uh, people live years ago. right now waiting to hear your answer. So give <laughs> well, it to well, us. Well, I start with what I said before. There is no Confucian DNA. Confucianism, like Christianity, contained heterodox movements who challenged the accepted doctrine. The accepted doctrine was set down after, long after the death of Confucius. And it was set down by emperors. So it was a tool of the empire. Mm. It was a successful tool in many ways. They created, for example, an alternative to the clan system. Ancient China was like ancient Rome. It was run by powerful families. You had to look up to the family head and the emperor often said, just treat me like your father. In fact, if you read Mario Puzo's Godfather 1, 2 and 3, you will understand a lot more about Confucianism than by trying to read the Chinese classics, because the classics are barely understandable to modern Chinese people. They're written in a hieroglyphics uh, and they're contentious what they actually meant at the time. So it's all about the Godfather. You must be very, very nice to the Godfather. And that is why, that is why Chinese liberals look at Trump with no surprise and no outrage. He just looks like a Chinese emperor to them. And 
uh, he's got it. There's his family. Um, there's his um, indisputable knowledge of facts. Uh, his disdain for science. That's the Chinese emperor. Mm. Um, then the uh, but what they what what the Confucians did in the Han Dynasty, which is around Roman times, is they created the bureaucracy. This is the world's first bureaucracy. It's a pure classic bureaucracy in the terms defined by Max Weber. Mm-hmm. Um, there are strict roles assigned to certain people and they are empowered to assign other roles to other people. So you form a nationwide network that's way more, way more efficient than any mafia. And mafias basically crumble and die mm-hmm. in the face of this. So they kept Confucianism as a fig leaf for really for a bureaucracy. Mm. It's a nice fig leaf. It's very beautiful. It has much art and poetry. Uh, but the reality was another doctrine called legalism. Legalism is basically um, don't question anything from the top. You kiss up and kick down. That is another reality of Chinese culture, which is well recognized in Chinese uh, literature and art. Uh, all the great novels of China, China's Middle Ages are about kiss up and kick down mm. and how hateful and horrible it was. So there were many people who reacted against Confucianism. Taoism has always been there. It, it, it doesn't respect anything of Confucianism. The ancient Taoist uh, uh, texts make fun of Confucianism. Oh, really? So that's, yes, they make, oh, do they ever? They say, <laughs> they, they, accuse, they, they accuse the Confucians of hypocrisy. Uh-huh. Just as all of the heterodox movements in the Middle Ages accused the, the Catholic Church of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. China has a very refined, very, very subtle and humorous take on hu- hypocrisy. Everyone, everyone knows the hypocrisy when they see it. That's one of the strengths of Chinese culture for me. Mm-hmm. Not Confucianism per se. You have to understand Confucianism per se. Yes, it's got its, it's, got its validity. It's got its power. Another point is that the West has that too. The West has almost as much Confucianism as China. We just don't call it Confucianism. We call it hierarchy or meritocracy. Mm. That's what Daniel Bell, my friend, is now busy telling the world, that meritocracy a la China is what we all need. But in fact, we've always had it. So. Uh-huh. Christopher uh, asks two questions in one, so I'll let you try to unpack this. Is Xi's increasingly centralized control at odds with a free circulation of knowledge that is so essential for progress in China? I believe so. Uh, and uh, we in my group um, work on this very intensively. This is, this is um, one of the, the very important questions for governments and corporations. Um, it, 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 uh, for good or for bad, it transcends issues of human rights, um, uh, which I don't think should be transcended. Nonetheless, the fact of the matter is um, many governments and corporations and universities, and civil societies will look the other way on, on questions of how the workers are treated or how minorities are treated. They want to know how scientists are treated. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- th- this is not to be ignored. And uh, the, the, there, there are many in China who will say to me, off the record, we want to achieve technological autarky, but it is an oxymoron. Technology has no national boundaries 
Um, there's virtually nothing being developed in the world. You know, quantum um, computing, um, uh, COVID-19 vaccines, none of that can be restricted to one set of, of national owners, of okay. national interests. They, they're, they're all going to be collaborative at some level. Science is like that. Science is very deeply subversive of um, state and national interests. Now, we have to wrap up soon, so I'm going to ask you a few rapid-fire questions. I'm not good at rapid-fire. You're not good at rapid-fire, but let's try it. Uh, first, from Mike, how likely is China to move to physical confrontations on a larger scale? Are we looking at war in the future? No. All right. Uh, from RRTY, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, what do Chinese people think about the Uyghur detention centers? concentration camps? They know very little about it. They know that, that Uyghurs are those rather uh, uh, disreputable looking people who sell um, sweets and carry knives and fight in the trains. They don't know that they don't know about the 12 Mukamas are a musical um, UNESCO recognized uh, um, world heritage. Uh, and uh, they don't know that the Uyghur culture is, is um, was at one stage at, at various stages threatened China itself. Uh, it was a very pain, powerful ancient Turkic empire. That doesn't mean right. anything to them. Bradley asks, is an invasion of Taiwan likely or even imminent? I would say um, it's, um, it's a permanent threat. It is a permanent possibility. Um, it, is, it is a permanent intention of China. At least China will not resile from it as an intention, but they lack the capability um, it, Taiwan is notoriously difficult to land troops on, and uh, they've just acquired another batch of US-provided weapons, which may uh, provide some strategic, strategic not advantage, but uh, a take a, a physical a physical um, um, conquest of Taiwan would be extremely costly to China. Mm -hmm. So this is what you, what, this is the game, is to make it too costly. All right, we're doing great. Done, but at what, at what cost? We're doing great. Two more quick questions, then we're done. Mike asks, is the Belt and Road Initiative designed to give China some of the strategic sites they want around the world for their military? Oh, it already has. I mean, Djibouti is already strategic. There aren't many strategic sites. There, there are places which are choke points. Um, a lot of Belt and Road was already in existence. It's it's a kind of um, it's a cumulative thing where you've you've already built up a number of these things and now you package it together. So it served a lot of domestic purposes. It was domestically huge. Uh, it was an, it was there to confirm the legitimacy of the boss. Um, it's uh, running into heaps of trouble and above all, it was never the, the cost. The risks were never uh, properly costed. And now the rest of the world, after COVID, are recosting those risks and they're up. All right. So and finally, from Gene, how likely is the is uh, how likely is it that the U.S. and its allies, like Australia, will actually stand up to Chinese power plays? Um, I think it's. Um, again, um, you must disaggregate that question. Um, we are only allies in a technical sense. Um, this alliance has only been tested 
in, in testing, Australia has paid a price by participating in, in US wars. I think to, 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 to imagine Australia participating in another such war um, is, uh, is a quite explosive issue for Australia. And the US is in, itself um, unsure and now, uh, and now has been thrown another complete, um, you know, a, 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 a fastball by, uh, uh, by Trump, Trump's most recent um, troop drawdowns. But um, what Australia and uh, the US can do in common is find common ground with China. And I've, in a recent Lowy Institute, presentation, I, I laid out what that was. And I'll briefly say the two points which I think um, you can talk to China and look for a, a, a draw in the sense of, a, a, of chess. In chess, if you get a draw, that's very good. Most tournaments are won by 10 draws and, and one win. <laughs> if you can get 10 draws and one win, you've won the tournament. You've got to think at tournament level. At tournament level, you should get draws on multilateralism and climate change. China is not climate denying. The US now under Biden will cease to be climate denying. This causes big problems. It's well discussed in the Australian media. What will Australia now say about climate? And it's, uh, it, could get a, it could get a draw with China on climate. If we, if we can collaborate with China. Uh, we're, we're still in collaboration with China in science, by the way. China is extremely interested in the Southern Hemisphere, and you've really got to have a foot in Australia to study the Southern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, 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 there's plenty to talk about. All right. On that note, we'll keep talking, but not this morning. David Kelly, thank you for joining us on On Liberty. Thank you. All right. Our producer is Emily Holmes, executive producer Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. Thanks, everyone, for watching today. We'll be back next week. We hope you see us then. Thanks, everyone.